You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I want to lead us into, if I may, this morning in our study of the book of Romans by reflecting on the writings of a 20th century theologian. In 1979, a theologian named Robert Zimmerman wrote a famous, famous piece of prose. You might know Robert Zimmerman by his more familiar name. He goes by Bob Dylan. Robert Zimmerman became Bob Dylan, and during his quote-unquote born-again Christian years, he wrote a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. He actually won a Grammy for this in 1979. It's the last time and the highest peaking song that he's written since was 1979, 40 years ago. That's sort of where his zenith was as far as recognition and acclaim. And he wrote this song called You Gotta Serve Somebody, and I think it'll be helpful to get us started in Romans chapter 6, and just a few lines of his song from 1979, You Gotta Serve Somebody. It goes like this. You might be departing to England or France. You might like to gamble, you might like to dance. You may be in the head of a champion on your world. You may be in touch of life with a large pearl. But you're going to have to hurt somebody, yeah? Indeed, you're going to have to hurt somebody. Well, maybe it's the devil. It may be the Lord. You're going to have to hurt somebody. Bob Dylan, ladies and gentlemen. I had to uh, freebase nine cough drops this morning just to make that happen. That was 1979, and... Um, John Lennon, as you might recall, one of the uh, songwriters for the Beatles, so hated that song. He said, I am embarrassed by that song. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is dangerous. And so Lennon wrote his own song called Serve Yourself, subtitled, Ain't Nobody Gonna Do It For You. Interestingly, one of those men turns out in the long scheme of things is right. One of them is dramatically and deadly in error. So our big idea for the morning doesn't actually originate with Robert Zimmerman or Bob Dylan. It actually comes from the Apostle Paul some 2,000 years ago. Our big idea comes to us from the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, but it does go very simply like this. You gotta serve somebody. Bob Dylan was actually referencing a very, very Pauline notion. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 15. I want to remind you that the overarching theme as we read these various passages, walking through, marching through Romans, is that the righteousness of God is given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the thrust, that's the thread, that's the theme of the book of Romans, and it's helpful for us to have that as a backdrop when we hear God's word read. So, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But, thanks be to God, 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Now this morning, I want to talk about, continue to talk about, this doctrine of sanctification. The Apostle Paul is going to open in verse 15, and he's going to ask a hypothetical diatribe question to Murray, our imaginary objector, the guy who's going to pipe up and say, wait a second, Paul, in verse 14, you just said that we are not under law, but we're under grace. So should we continue to sin? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Paul apparently heard this objection all the time. It's a similar question that is asked in verse 1, but it's a little bit of a nuanced difference. Okay, Paul, I get it. You're saying we're not under law, that there's no moral code of conduct. There's no constraint upon us. So then should we just sin since we're under grace? Is that what you mean, Paul? I think Paul heard this argument frequently from Jewish people and even from Jewish Christians. And I have a strong, strong sense. I can't prove it. But I have a strong, strong sense that Paul himself probably voiced that same exact objection when he was Saul of Tarsus, and the deacon named Stephen used to debate with him in the synagogue there in Jerusalem. Well, wait a minute. If you say we abolish the law, then what's to keep people from going completely off the reservation? And he could not withstand Stephen's teaching. I think that's why Paul carries this through for so long. Now, last week we began in chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, and we began talking about sanctification because we've come through the doctrine of justification, which was necessary because of the doctrine of condemnation. But here's where the 21st century American or Western church sometimes goes a little bit off kilter. We have sort of bought the 20th century notion that the answer for licentiousness or license is legalism. And it is not. It is very easy to read a passage like this and say, see there, we have to try harder to do more to be better. That is absolutely not at all what Paul is saying. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to walk back through, very briefly, this passage beginning in verse 15 and just sort of unpack it. What shall we say then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul says, by no means. Meganoitai. It is the strongest negative construction he can come up with. May it never even be conceived. May it never even ideate. Of course not. If you think that at all, then you have never been transferred from the rule of one realm to the rule of another realm. You don't get it because you don't have it. So no, of course not. Absolutely not. The ruling force of one's life, if it is grace, will always produce one thing. If the ruling force of one's life is law, it will always produce something else entirely. So Paul's going to talk about a new set of imagery. Verse 16, do you not know? 
It's really better translated, are you so ignorant? The assumed answer is yes. Are you so ignorant? Yes, dad, I am. Oh, wait, sorry, that's a little window into my childhood. Are you so ignorant? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves? Now, Paul's going to spend quite a bit of time talking about slaves. This is important. The first half of chapter 6, the primary metaphor or word picture or analogy or symbol that Paul uses for sin is death. Remember, death is not extinction. Death is separation. Now, in the second half of chapter 6, Paul's going to shift gears, and he's going to use his second most favorite illustration for sin, slavery. That's what sin is all through Paul's epistles. It is either death or slavery or death and slavery. So this morning, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a slave. He shifts gears, and he begins talking about slavery. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, that is, separation, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, that is some very interesting ideas. Presenting yourself as a slave. It's a little bit hard for us to understand because, rightly so, we are all products of a 20th century educational system that beat into our heads, rightly, the horrors of the slave trade on this side of the Atlantic, where people were in large, large quantities trafficked from other countries, brought here against their will, and forced into bonded slavery. That is not the idea of slavery in the Bible. Paul has in mind two aspects of slavery. First of all, of course, Old Testament slavery where a person would willfully bind himself or herself to a master because he loved that master, because that master was good, because that master had resources, because that master had a plan and a purpose, and there was protection, and there was love, and there was security in that household. And the Old Testament talks about that bond servant would have a nail or a pin driven through their ear as a demonstration into the door to say, I am willfully presenting myself to you. You are my master. You are good. Paul has that idea in mind. But he also has in mind the culture and the context of the Roman Empire, in which people would voluntarily, willingly subject themselves to be the slave of another person because they had a debt they simply could not pay, and they would say, I have no more assets, no resources. I am going to willfully subject myself to the mastery of somebody else until such time as I can pay off my debt or until such time as I decide this is where I'm going to live out the rest of my days in bond service to this person. That's what Paul is talking about, where someone willingly binds themselves. So he says here again in verse 16, do you know, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves? Well, how do we, how do we present ourselves to something to be its obedient slave? I found this this week, and I think it's absolutely perfect. I know it's pertinent for me. I hope it's uh, connected to you as well. This is by a woman named Rebecca Manley Pippert. She writes in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. Not just what we say controls us, but whatever functionally, actually, practically controls us is our Lord. That is the organizing narrative of our life. Or we might say that is our religion. Whatever controls us is our Lord, she writes. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks wealth is actually controlled by wealth. They are presenting themselves as an obedient slave to wealth. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. 
Whatever controls you is your Lord. We do not control ourselves, she says. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. So what Paul will say is serving the wrong master will always lead to death and separation, to shadow, to darkness, to defeat. Serving the correct master, being submitted to obedience and to righteousness, leads to production of righteousness. But again, we don't produce any righteousness, but submitting ourselves to the right master, he produces righteousness in us. Our being willfully submitted to him, to the correct master, he does a work above and beyond all we can expect. Verse 17, but... To drive the point home, Paul says, but thanks be to God. That's the root. That's the origin. That's the nexus of where this comes from. It is thanks be to God. He has done a thing. You who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Captain prepositional phrase strings a bunch of them together again here in verse 17. This bear is talking about here just a little bit. You who were once slaves to sin. By the way, that is every human being ever, that is their default condition. At conception, we come into existence slaves to sin. That's who we all are. But then we became obedient from the heart, wholeheartedly. There was a heart change. Something different occurred within us. Yes, there was an intellectual agreement with a set of propositional truths. I agree with this. I believe that. That makes sense to me. But then there was also at conversion, there had to have been a heartfelt desire to be conformed to the truth that was taught to us. That form of teaching, Paul says here, your Bible might say that form of doctrine, that's what it is, to which we are committed is, of course, the gospel. The gospel, as we say down here all the time, the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That my heart became conformed to that teaching wholeheartedly. I understood it, I understand it, but my heart actually wants that. By the way, when Paul says here, to which you were committed, we have a tendency to misapply that. We take that English word committed as if I committed myself to it. It's not it. It's in the passive voice. It's paradidumi. It has the idea of you being given over. It's the same word when Judas betrays Jesus, he gives him over. I want you to hear that. It is handing over of one person by a person to some other people. Paul says you were given over to that form of teaching. It was done to you. It's not that you necessarily are the sharpest knife in the drawer or the freshest sandwich in the picnic basket. Something happened to you. You were given over to that form of teaching we call the gospel. Paul pulls no punch with that whatsoever. We were then set free from sin. It happened to us. We didn't set ourselves free from sin. And so because of that, we are now servants or slaves to righteousness. What motivates us, what actually controls our lives is not the pursuit of acceptance or material possessions or wealth or power. It's actually righteousness. The thing that I desire most deeply and profoundly, Paul says, is to see this world set right because that's what God is doing. Don't you remember from chapter one, the righteousness of God is revealed. He is in the process of setting this world right, and I'm so desperate for that. If you're not, then I encourage you and I challenge you to simply turn on the news, turn on the interwebs, and look what's happening in our world. And if you don't have a burden for blessing and peace and the shalom of the whole world to break forth, then maybe we're not looking with the right set of eyes and and 
discerning from the right heart. That's what we are as slaves to righteousness. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then Paul says, let me, let me, let me, let me explain, because I think I just outkicked my coverage a little bit. I know how Paul feels. I do this. I call it a sermon. Every time I say a little bit more than I intend, Paul actually has to backtrack and sort of apologize for this strong language of slavery that he's using. So he says in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm just using an analogy. I'm just using a metaphor because you're so fleshly and dim, Paul says. I would never say that. Paul says that he's an apostle, okay? But he says, listen, I know that that doesn't quite sit right, that as believers, um, to be called a slave of God seems a little bit harsh. And to be sure, Jesus calls us friends. He calls us brothers. He calls us firstborn sons and heirs. We are not slaves in the fact that we are mindless robots. No, no, no. Paul says it's just an analogy of where you are submitted. So let me explain a little further. He says, I'm speaking in human terms, because of your natural or fleshly limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, this is really, really, really good psychotherapy and counseling. I don't know that Paul knows that he's doing this, but this is brilliant counseling he's doing here. He says again, you once presented your members, that's just the, the whole, uh, whole of your material and emotional and spiritual being as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present. There is this willful submission, this directed um, yielding to something else, your members, as slaves to righteousness, which will lead to sanctification. What's really fascinating here is there's no middle ground. I hear people talk about all the time, I'm just sort of in this gray nothingness. I'm not really growing. I'm not really backsliding. I'm just me. Which I would say with all ardor that I can say it, there is no meh. You are either progressing in some willful, wholehearted devotion and yieldedness as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, or you are in apathy or in confusion sliding back the other direction. But what's fascinating is that Paul says your subjection to lawlessness simply produces more lawlessness, which produces more lawlessness. It sure is nice and convenient when science agrees with Scripture. By the way, when science does agree with Scripture, we don't applaud the scientists for being, you know, really novel and that they discovered something new. We say, hey, good for you. You agree with Scripture. That means you're a good scientist. There is in the brain this idea, this concept called neuroplasticity. Don't need to know that word, just know this. That the more we do things to elicit pleasure, the more our brains literally, physiologically are rewired to want to reproduce that pleasure. Neuroplasticity. Your brain physiologically rewires to accomplish that. Lawlessness produces more lawlessness. Impurity produces in your brain more impurity. You'll do whatever it takes to get that dopamine dump all over again, and your brain figures out shortcuts. Your brain rewires to make it happen a little bit faster. But praise be to God, there's also neuroplasticity in the other direction, where a consistent pattern of wellness and wholeness also rewires our brain to understand, hey, this is God's plan for my life and our brains can actually be healed and be redeemed and so can our souls and so can our minds. This is a very good idea. This is very good news. I don't know that that's exactly what Paul has in his mind, but I'm confident that the Spirit of God who made us knows this. So verse 
19 says, again, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 20, but when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Oh, it's either or. There was a time when you were completely free. When you were slaves to sin, you were completely free. The thing from which you were free was righteousness. You could actually accomplish, produce, effect, zero righteousness whatsoever. You were completely free. How was that going for you? You were completely free, but only from righteousness. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Paul goes fully pragmatic. He asks essentially, how was that working out for you? That's right, 2,000 years before Dr. Phil, it's Dr. Paul. How's that working out for you? Right? You're just living in sin and lawlessness and impurity. How'd that work out for you? Not so good. You lost your house. You lost your wife. You lost your bass boat twice. How'd that work out for you? Pragmatics. Now, we don't always use pragmatics as the sole lens through which we look at our lives, but it's not a bad question. How did that work out for you? Again, verse 21, Paul says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? That's a good principle, Christian. I still to this day hear Christians bragging and talking about the glory days of their pattern of sin way back when. Oh man, I was something else. And they sort of act like there's a longing for it. There's a, I really miss it. That's when I was really alive. But now I've just got to try to be good. Distinctly unbiblical way of looking at yourself and at the world around you. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, notice the action that is done to you. You have been set free. You did not go all Spartacus and redeem yourself. No, no, no. You have been bought back from the slave market of sin. Someone paid a price. You have been set free and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. What is sanctification producing? everlasting life, drawing closer and closer and closer to the ultimate final age when everything is utterly set right. We get to participate and practice in that, if only in a shadow, even now. Because, verse 23, and always a famous, wonderful passage, the wages of sin is death. Paul uses a very technical term, opsonomia. Opsonia is the wages paid to a soldier. A Roman soldier, when he marches so far or builds so much road or constructs an aqueduct or fights in battles, he's going to get paid his due wage every single time without fail. That's how the Roman army worked. And Paul says, because the wages of sin is death. What it's going to produce every single time, always on time, is death. Not extinction, separation, and a continuing downward spiral of death, darkness, and separation. But... Beautiful, beautiful wordplay Paul does here in verse 23. But the free gift of God, not wage, not earned. The, 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 the sin earns death, but there is a free gift. The charisma of God is, my translation says eternal life. I prefer everlasting life. We are not eternal beings. We're everlasting beings. There was a time when we did not exist. God is the only eternal. Leads to everlasting life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And there it is again. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I could accomplish a, a few things throughout this Roman series, it would be to get us all, me first, to think differently about our identity. The Apostle Paul almost never, in fact, I don't think Paul himself ever uses the term Christian. Never says it. 
a Christian. He never says that. That was said of Christians in Syrian Antioch in Acts chapter 11. They had been called the way. And then people outside the church started saying, oh, those are Christians. They, they follow Christ. They. But Paul will always talk about, especially in Romans and in Ephesians, he'll talk about what is a Christian is really someone who has union with Christ. Union with Christ. I don't think in my many decades of being in the church and in ministry, we've ever done a good enough job talking about the significance of union with Christ. We talked about it a little bit last week when we had believers' baptism, that we are enveloped and immersed, covered in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that what happened to him, it's like it happened to us, like his finished work is ours. That's what it means to have union with Christ, and it is a free gift of God, never earned, never warranted. But Paul's going to say, you've got to serve somebody. Whether you like it or not, you serve somebody. The only question is, what is it? So very briefly and uncharacteristically, I want to go through six quick implications from this passage. There's six. I usually do two or three. I have six this time. Why? Because seven seems a little bit too holy, and I can't have seven. I'm just going to do six. The first one's going to be an attention getter. This is, this is where I get a whole lot of people crossing their arms and their legs and their pinky toes, and their doctrinal defense gates go like this. So pump the hate breaks there. Let's just, we're going to get through this. All right. The first principle goes like this. There is no such thing as free will. I know. Let me explain. Hold on. Because those words mean something. There is no such thing as free will. But relax. Let me explain. Even in amoral issues, like which color shirt should I wear, the blue shirt or the green shirt, all of those even amoral decisions, there are all kinds of influences and predispositions that are feeding into those choices. It's never completely free and absolutely 100% arbitrary. And if it was, that's not free will because you would never decide anything. With zero influence whatsoever, what would be your criteria? Be a flip of a coin every single time. The way most people mean it, I know what you mean. But according to Paul in Romans 6, there is no free will. Yes, you have the ability to make choices, but there's nothing completely free about it. Every choice we make is because of some disposition of our will. This was Martin Luther's whole point when he writes the book, The Bondage of the Will. And by the way, Luther is only referencing St. Augustine, who's only referencing the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. The will, because of its fallen, corrupt nature, is bound. Paul says it, you are free from righteousness. You, you, you can't do any righteous. You cannot choose anything against your nature. There is no such thing as perfectly free will. Luther was responding to a guy named Erasmus 500 years ago who wrote a book saying, no, the will is free to choose. God has leveled the playing field for everybody so that everybody can choose God on their own volition. Luther said, that's cute and all, and I wish it was in the Bible, but it isn't. It's not there. Read Romans. If we are slaves to sin, then all of our choosing is under the rulership of that master. But if we are servants of God, then we have been given by his spirit the will and the ability to obey him. This is what we're coming to with what sanctification is. Sanctification means that God increasingly transforms me into the image of his son so that what I ought to do becomes more and more what I want to do. 
but I don't have that in and of myself. It is the free gift of God. He gives me the will, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, and the ability to actually obey him, which leads to my second point. It goes like this. Sanctification is becoming who you are. It's not trying to become something that you might could possibly be one day. Sanctification is becoming who you are. It's not about doing more good stuff and less bad stuff. And perhaps you've heard it said like this before, which I'm not a huge fan of. It's not that you're sinless, but you certainly sin less. Really? Why don't you spend about 20 minutes over a cinnamon roll with my wife and she'll tell you, that's not happening to this guy. No, it doesn't quite work that way. It might be true, but it probably isn't. It's like Gerhard Forty, this great German Lutheran scholar, said, he said, I don't sin less, I'm just tired. <sighs> it's, just, it's just too much work. Eh. Sanctification is much more about becoming the person that Christ has redemptively recreated me to be. See, at creation, I am a person, but at my conversion, there is a redemptive recreation where I am being redemptively recreated into the image and the form of the Son of God himself to grow into that identity that he has already initiated. In a lot of ways, it is just simply learning day by day to live under this new rulership from this realm because I've been transferred from the rulership of that realm which we've been the recipients of that transference and to increasingly trust that Jesus is really better. And I don't know if you remember this. This is over a year ago now. Um, when we were studying through the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and 15, Peter is told by Jesus a couple times, Peter, you are clean already. And part of your demonstration that you are clean is that you let me clean you. That vexing passage in 13 when he's having his feet washed and Peter's, oh, wash all of me. Jesus says, no, you're already clean. Well, then I don't need to be washed. No, no, let me wash you. Become who you already are. You are clean, now let me clean you. That's the process of this life in this age of sanctification. Now, let me unpack a little bit more this idea of sanctification. This gets a little bit theological. That's okay, you got big giant brains. You can handle all this. Next point goes like this. We have been positionally sanctified. I want you to notice the next three points, the verb tenses here. We have been. It has happened. We have been positionally sanctified. This is true of you. If you don't know this about yourself, you need to know this about yourself. This is truth. We have been positionally sanctified. We talked about this last week. We have been baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have union with Christ. That is our position before God the Father. It's as though we were zipped into the Son of God himself. That is our position, and he can never improve his standing before God. And so your positional sanctification never, ever improves. It also never diminishes. That's really good news because I've made a flaming wreckage of a whole bunch of my life. But my position in Christ never, ever changes. What a release. What a relief. What a burden removal. I have been sanctified positionally. I have union with Christ. Christ can accomplish no more. There's nothing else he can do. He has done it. It is finished. Christian, right now, when God sees you, he sees Jesus. Your position will never, ever change for all everlastingness forever. Now that is a freedom. Paul asks the question, so if that's true, if I am in Christ, I'm under grace, doesn't that give me license just to go all kinds of crazy? Not if you understand what it means to be in Christ. 
Not if you understand what it means to be in Christ. You would, you would never. He's a person. He's good. Did, did you see how he interacted with the adulterous woman? Did, did, did you see how he encountered the woman at the well, how he dealt with children? Do, do you see how he angrily cleared the temple because people were being victimized by the institution? Do you see the things that he does? And said, you go, I love that guy. Betray him? Just because I can? A gross misunderstanding. Of course not. We have been sanctified positionally. Anything good that I do is because of the Spirit's leading and His power. And that's good news. Equally good news. Anything bad that I do is because of apathy and it has been paid for at the cross of Christ. My, my warrant for arrest and execution has already been nailed to the cross of Christ. That's Colossians 2. We have been positionally sanctified. Next point. We are being progressively sanctified. You're going to notice the brilliance in these. They all start with P. We've been positionally sanctified. We are being progressively sanctified. This life, I get it, it's this strange practical mix of the already and the not yet. We are saints who struggle with sin. Luther was always wrestling with this idea. In this life, God is always in the process of refining us with heat and trial and travail, and chiseling away the stuff that is not of him and that is not good for us or for the people around us. And sometimes that hurts and sometimes we want to cling to it. But we are progressively being conformed. What God is doing is he's preparing us for a life of everlastingness where he rules our lives utterly. So that we begin to show flickers of our eternal identity now so that every time God calls upon any of us for anything whatsoever, our response is just like that of Abraham or Moses in the Old Testament when God shows up and goes, Moses! And Moses' response is what? Here I am. That's sanctification. Ever increasingly being willing to yield the dark corners and the nooks and the crannies that we think, oh, no, 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 I'll take care of that little spot of my life. No, no, no. Here I am, all of me. Nothing held back, nothing guarded, nothing but private and personal. He knows. Progressive sanctification is an increasing here I am, here I am, so that when God calls, you just say, here I am. And by that, I mean my checkbook. Here I am. By that, I mean my internet history. Here I am. I mean all the ways I steward the body that you have given. Here I am. We are being progressively sanctified. Next point. We will be permanently sanctified. We have been positionally sanctified. We are being progressively sanctified. We will be permanently sanctified. This is another way that Paul talks about glorification, the final removal of my sin. This occurs at physical death when I am eternally separated from my corruption. See, when I am converted, I am, as a believer, am separated from both the penalty and the power of sin. We talked about that last week. But then physical death happens. All that is is the final removal of the presence of sin. So the believer need not actually fear death. For the believer, your conversion was way more profound and significant than your physical death. And when I see Christians who don't live as though that were true, and I see them living in bondage to fear, yeah, but I don't want to, but I don't want to. Oh, I do. I'm so sick of the stench of my own sorry sin. Y'all, it's big. But one day, I will only ever want fully that which Jesus wants, perfectly and persistently. That will be glory. I will be permanently 
sanctified. So no, Christian, we don't fear death. Psalm 116, 15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because in that case, Jesus finally goes, now you're fully free. No more to ever have the slightest stain or stink of sin on you again. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, where sin is fully obliterated. Last point, it goes like this, and this is actually a quote, one of my favorite quotes, because it took me decades to finally believe it. It comes from a guy named Dallas Willard, who is with the Lord now. His quote was this, and it's exactly right from Romans 6. It says, the virtuous life is the only life that works. It's not a call to legalism. Please don't misunderstand. But the virtuous life is actually the only life that works. You know this. I know this. We've tried every other way, and it never produces life. It always produces separation, pain, sorrow, suffering, and darkness. Always. It's the virtuous life. The problem is I'm so utterly incapable of living it in my own strength. Right, 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 right. right. But my weakness is my strength. Because I rely on him who gives me the will and the ability to actually set things right in this world. Righteousness is actually effected in me. So it's what Oswald Chambers wonderfully said. The child of God stops asking, what is the will of God? And he or she begins to realize, I am the will of God. Now that's good news. The virtuous life is the only life that works. We have this tendency, even today in the 21st century, to think that sin is all this fun stuff that God is more or less holding out on. Maybe there's still a little pocket of your life where you think this little secret short sin that no one knows about, it's all this fun stuff that God's just arbitrarily telling me I can't have. And I feel like I'm missing out. God's holding out on me. By the way, that's ancient. That's Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. God, you're holding out on me. No, God knows. He's our maker and he's the writer of the manual. Any sin that we entertain has never, ever once in human history ended well. Never once. But our issue is not simply a lack of knowledge. Adam and Eve's problem was not that they didn't know enough. Adam and Eve's problem was my problem. Is that my affection leaks, it dwindles, it diminishes. And so I have to come back to God's word. I have to come back with God's people and see that I'm not the only one who struggles. I'm not the only one who has these issues. And I get reminded and I get encouraged and I get edified that you're here too because this is the day we proclaim that he is alive. And I'm not completely crazy, at least not for that reason. I need the people of God. I don't like all the people of God and they certainly don't like me and for very good reason, but I need the people of God to edify, equip and bolster and bless me. To remind me, this is God's plan. You gotta serve somebody. You gotta serve somebody. This master offers himself and he is good and we can trust him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and that you are doing a work in us above and beyond all we can imagine or expect. And so we ask God that you would give us eyes to see. We ask that you would give us hearts that are amplified to have affection for your son Jesus, minds that are expanded to increase our attention on what you have taught us, this form of teaching that is the gospel. And so, Lord God, if there are any this morning who do not know you, I pray that you will set them free from the bondage of sin, that you will transfer them from one rule of one realm to that of another, 
that you will give them the will and the capacity to honor you, to please you, to live lives of sacrifice. For the rest of us, God, who perhaps uh, have relied on some formula of trying to answer license with legalism, would you free us from that and give us the glory, the joy, the peace, the warmth, and the thrill of being under grace? And may your people live boldly, not fearing death. We pray for those outside these walls, God. Would you do for them what you have done for us? And may we have boldness and courage to receive them when you bring them. We pray all this, God, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.